0: If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to be looking at chapters 2 through 5 as we continue on in our series, Regalia, All Things Pertaining to the King and the Kingdom. Well, in chapters 2 through 5, we're going to see how God gives rise to the reign of his king. It is a sloppy, messy, bloody, conflicting series of events, but God is sovereignly working in all those things to bring about his purpose, just like God is working today in all of the circumstances in our lives to bring about the reign of his king and his kingdom. I'm going to be reading excerpts of this and uh, trying to summarize these chapters a bit as we look at how God is working today, and in these chapters, we're going to see how God is working even in our lives to bring about the salvation he's offered to you and me. Here's the way it was written in 2 Samuel 2, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. And David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabez-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead." and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. War breaks out between the house of Saul and the house of David. And when you get to uh, chapter three and chapter four, you see how all of God's working through these circumstances brings about what would happen in chapter five, beginning in verse one. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns, and the Lord said to you, "You will be shepherd my, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler." When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David, king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much going on here that's part of our history as Christians. And it reminds us that the same God who works so sovereignly in all these circumstances to give rise to the king and the Kingdom is the same God who is working today in all of our circumstances to give rise to the king and the kingdom. So, Lord, help us to see your hand at work, that we may find comfort and even joy in the midst of all that we face, because we've come to trust a God who is sovereign over all. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. Sovereignty is a hard thing to illustrate, um, and this isn't the best example, and I shared this once before a few years ago, but when my kids were little, like in elementary school, occasionally I would go to meet them at lunch, and then they'd go outside on the playground to play. Now, when the kids were like in first and second grade, and they're playing basketball, let's say, some of the bigger kids would always want to come over and steal the basketball. And so the kids would yell and scream and all that. And eventually when I saw what was happening, I said, hey, to the bigger guys, how about these little guys and I take you on in basketball? Well, they were all in. Well, one of the things I loved about doing that was being three feet taller than anybody on the court, I could control the game. So I could control who got the ball, who didn't get the ball, who shot and who got blocked, who got the rebound, who didn't. I could keep the score close. I could make it a blowout. And I loved it. The little guys loved it. And the bigger guys, it took them a long time to figure out what was happening. They just kept showing up every week, and I would be in total control of the game. I could make it come out any way I wanted. I was, in some ways, sovereignly controlling the game. God is totally sovereign over everything. All people, all nations, all circumstances. In fact, he knows what we're going to think before we think it. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. He controls kings and kingdoms. He controls the spark that sets a forest ablaze. Every beat of my heart is numbered by God. He has it fully in his hand. He is totally sovereign. And he's not playing a game. He's building a kingdom. And throughout history, God has been in sovereign control of the people and events to give rise to his king and that kingdom. And that's why in this section of 2 Samuel 2 through 5, it's all about God's sovereign hand to bring about the rise of his king. You see, Saul in his reign as king is over. Saul is dead. But David did not immediately become king. He waited for God's time. That's why in chapter 2, verse 1 begins like this. In the course of time, David waited. As you go on in chapter 2, you discover that David inquires of God through Abiathar the priest. Should I go up to the city, or should I go up to my own Judah? Remember, he's in Ziklag, Philistine territory, and he's asking God, is it time to go up to my homeland? God says, go up. Where should I go? Go to Hebron, a very centrally located city for the kingdom of Judah. David is anointed king of Judah and Judah alone. Meanwhile, Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, Takes Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, a 40 year old man, and installs him as king of Israel at Gibeon. Joab, who is the leader of David's armies in Judah, gets wind of it, sees the threat, and so he goes to Gibeon to face off against Abner and Saul's troops. Now, in those days, often it would be a strategy to choose some guys on each side and have them fight together rather than involving the whole army. That's what the whole David and Goliath thing was about. David or Goliath was challenging one man to come from Saul's army. Those two duke it out and the rest of the army doesn't have to be destroyed. So here's Joab with David's troops and here's Abner with Saul's troops and they pick 12 guys each, have them stand up and they're gonna fight and the winners are gonna determine the outcome. Well, the problem was they hadn't counted on each guy grabbing their opponent and shoving a knife in their side. All 24 of them died. It was a tie. So that didn't solve anything. So war broke out. And Joab's forces with David overpowered Israel. Abner runs for his life. Well, Joab has a little brother named Asahel. And apparently he's a pretty fast guy because he went chasing after Abner. Now Asahel was no match for Abner in battle and Abner knew it and he didn't want to mess with Joab again. So he said to Asahel, quit chasing me. You can't win. It's not going to be any good. Break off. You're going to lose. Asahel kept coming. He was going to kill Abner at all costs. And so in a clean act of war in his own self-defense, Abner kills Asahel. Joab gets word of it and he starts chasing after him with the whole army. Abner convinces him that it's going to come to no good. And so Joab withdraws, but he bears that grudge. When you get to chapter 3, you read this in verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. At Hebron, David takes on four more wives, six wives now. He has six sons. Abner, head of Israel's army, decides he's going to make a move, and so he sleeps with one of Saul's former concubines, making the claim of royalty for himself. A total immoral act and a total affront to Ishbosheth, because you see, Abner was becoming frustrated with Ishbosheth. When Abner realizes, not even this is going to bring him the kingdom. He goes over to David and he says, David, I can bring all of Israel over to you. David agrees and he says, provided, provided Abner, that you bring my former wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, Ishbosheth's sister, because she was pledged to be married. We were married, but she was taken away from me and illegally given to another man. I want you to bring Michael with you when you come. Ishbosheth agrees to this with his sister, acknowledging through that act that in giving the daughter of Saul back to David, he's acknowledging David as the rightful king. David comes to peace terms with Abner and Israel and Ishbosheth, and he sends them on their way. Joab, by the way, comes back, not there for all of this. He finds out David's made peace with Ishbosheth and Abner, and he's furious. He's still harboring that grudge over Abner killing his brother Asahel. So, Joab invites Abner to come to Hebron. And when he's there, he pulls him aside and murders him in an act of cold blood. David is innocent, but when David learns of it, he doesn't do anything to bring Joab to account for his crime. When you get to chapter 4, the intrigue continues. Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, has a couple of guys... In his army that he used to send out raiding, they see Ishbosheth's power beginning to fail. And so they decide, we're going to do something to gain favor with David. So they sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's taking a nap in the afternoon and they kill him. They cut off his head and they bring the head to David at Hebron. When they show up there, They think they're going to get a reward. But what David says to them, you know, you remind me of some guys that came when they told me Saul was dead and they thought they were going to get a reward. I killed them. Now I'm going to kill you and rid the earth of you for you have killed an innocent man in his bed. And so David has those men killed. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. Saul's sons are dead. And now Ishbosheth has died. When you get to chapter 5, David is anointed king over all of Israel. Now he's over Israel and Judah. David captures, goes down to capture the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. He has more wives and more more kids. He defeats the Philistines, and he prepares to bring the ark of God's covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. The rise of the king's reign is now established by God. It is messy. It is bloody it is full of betrayal and conflict that brings an innocent David to be king. And God would use him to defeat Israel's enemies all in God's time. David is the forerunner of the greatest king we'll ever know, named Jesus. An innocent Jesus who goes through a process that was messy and bloody and full of betrayal and conflict to arise as the king who would go on to defeat our greatest enemy all in God's time. And this portion of Second Samuel reminds us that God is the one who sovereignly works to give rise to the reign of his king and his kingdom. How does he do it? By sovereignly working through circumstances to establish his king, and by sovereignly working through circumstances to establish his kingdom the same God who's working in our circumstances today for that same purpose. God gives rise to the king's reign by sovereignly working through circumstances to establish his king. It says in chapter two, verse one, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and abigail the widow of nabal of carmel david also took the men who were with him each with his family and they settled in hebron and its towns then the men of judah came to hebron and there they anointed david king over the tribe of judah chapter 5 verse 1 all the tribes of israel came to david at hebron and said we are your own flesh and blood In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns, and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years." There's a television show I've watched a couple of times. I don't recommend it. It's called Family Feud. Now, if you haven't seen it, uh, the audience is surveyed with some questions. They take the top 100 answers, and then the contestants have to guess what the top answers were, and whoever gets the most points wins. That's kind of the gist of it. Well, in 2012, uh, Steve Harvey's leading this thing, and one of the questions was, when someone mentions the king... To whom might he or she be referring? In other words, who is the king? Top four answers. Eighty-one people said Elvis Presley. Eighty-one people. Seven people said God or Jesus. Three people said Martin Luther King Jr., which is fine. But these two people, I don't get it. The Burger King? Really, that's who you think of? (laughs) (laughs) Obvious confusion that day in the crowd who the king was. Well, in the 10th century B.C. in Israel and in Judah, if you'd have asked the question, who is the king, you'd have got the same kind of confusion. The answers would have been all over the bar. Some would have said, well, Saul's a rightful king. No, his son Jonathan. No, one of his sons like Ishbosheth. No, it should be Abner. No, it should be David. It wasn't clear who had the rightful identity to be the king. But God was sovereignly working in the circumstances behind the scene to leave no doubt. He was giving rise to his king, King David. And knowing, David knowing that he's been anointed king by Samuel, remember that? As a boy. He waits on God's time to reign. And he asks God to direct the steps. That's why he says in chapter 2, verse 1, Lord, should should I go out of Philistine territory? Should I go up to Hebron? Should I go up to Judah? God says, go up. And as soon as David gets there, he's anointed king. And one of the first things he does is reach out in grace to an enemy, Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead housed the people that were very much aligned with Saul. They were fighting against David. But David loves Saul. Despite the fact they had become his enemy. Kind of like Jesus, who loves us even though we sin against him. And this David reaches out to Jabez Gilead and he said, Because of your kindness in burying Saul, I'm going to reach out in kindness to you. And he offered them an agreement of peace. And he said, Come to me because they've anointed me king over Judah. David did not take the kingdom by force. He waited for God's sovereign time to establish him as king and for him to be lifted up. Just like you and I are called to wait on God's time in all of our circumstances. Just like Jesus did. Do you remember it was Jesus who waited for God's time to be fulfilled in his life and ministry. And he was very aware of the timing that God was working. Do you remember at the wedding feast of Cana in John chapter 2? On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana, and it was a Tuesday. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. When the disciples wanted him to go to Jerusalem to appear publicly in John 7, he said in verse 6, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. In John chapter 7, verse 30, when he preached at the temple courts and the people tried to seize him, They couldn't because his hour had not yet come. And after riding into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday morning, he had a different message. John 12, verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. People, when you're reading in the scriptures and you see Jesus say over and again, not yet, not yet, not yet. Not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, now. Boy, when he says now, pay attention to what he's telling you. And the now was him riding into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. The king was coming to conquer the enemy. John chapter 12, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, when the time was right, God would anoint his chosen king for his given purpose. And so David was anointed in God's time. And so was Jesus. Do you remember what happened in Bethany in Matthew 26, verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper? A woman comes, Mary comes, and anoints him with a very expensive perfume. The disciples objected, you remember? This could have been sold and given to the poor. The poor you'll always have with you, he said. Look at verse 10, Matthew 26, verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Why? Because you see, the hour of his death had come. He was gonna reign as king over sin, death, and the grave. He was the king who was coming to die. And this was his anointing as king, just as David had his anointing as king. You remember what happened the next day after that anointing? John chapter 12, verse 13, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the who? The king of Israel. Jesus is anointed king and rides into Jerusalem the next day. David is anointed king over a united kingdom and rides into Jerusalem in chapter 5 to claim that city as the city of David. You see, this is why Paul, when he proclaimed in Acts 13, all the meaning of Israel's history, he said in Acts 13, verse 22, after removing Saul, he, God, made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. You see, folks, there can be no doubt who the king is. His name is Jesus. And God has sovereignly worked in all of history to make it known that Jesus is the king. And now God is working in all of our circumstances to reveal this king to make him known through the blessings and the trials, through the good things and the bad things, through the easy things and the hard things, through the things we would choose and the things we would never choose, God is sovereignly working to reveal in us and through us that we have a king and his name is Jesus and he makes a difference in our lives. And through those circumstances, God today is giving rise to the reign of his king. That's why we go through what we go through, just like David, just like Jesus. God gave rise to the reign of King Jesus, just as he gave rise to the reign of King David. And not only to establish his king, but God gives rise to the king's reign by sovereignly working through circumstances to establish his kingdom. That's why it says in 2 Samuel 5, verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah, seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah, 33 years. There are many kings and many kingdoms, but there one day are all going to bow to one king and one kingdom. Now, I was reading a piece by Lee Eckloff, He's a pastor in Illinois. An article he read in the Chicago Tribune, that said, one nation under me, which catches your attention. It said, Kevin Baugh has his own country, the Republic of Malosia. And if you don't mind, he'd prefer you call him His Excellency Kevin Baugh. After all, he has an impressive khaki uniform with six big medals, a gold braid, epaulets at the shoulder, and a blue, white, and green sash. And he has a general's cap with a gold starburst over the bill. Never heard of the Republic of Malosia? That's understandable because it consists of Baugh's three-bedroom house, and a 1.3-acre yard outside of his home in Dayton, Nevada. (laughs) According to an article in the Chicago Tribune, he has a space program, a model rocket. He has currency pegged to the value of chocolate chip cookie dough. A railroad model size. He has a national sport called broomball. And in his landlocked desert region, he launched a navy. He bought an inflatable boat. The newspaper goes on to say, "Ball, a 45-year-old father of two, is a micro-nationalist, one of a wacky band of do-it-yourself nation builders who raise flags over their front yards and declare their property to be, as Ball puts it, the kingdom of me. Well, apparently this is spreading. There are now many kings and many kingdoms. Some of those you would recognize and some you wouldn't. But you need to understand one day there's going to be one kingdom and one king. They're all going to bow to the true king. You see, God is building a kingdom, and it's not the kingdom of me. It is the kingdom of God and of his Christ. In David's day, it would be seen in the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah coming together as one kingdom under one king. While David would be on the throne in Hebron and later in Jerusalem, there was no question. David understood that it would be God who would be reigning through David from his throne in heaven. David was merely to be the good shepherd, the under-shepherd, the king, heading a line of descendants, leading to the ultimate shepherd king, Jesus. That's why in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. Remember when Samuel anointed him as a boy. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you'll become their ruler. A shepherd king. You see, it was always God's plan to be the shepherd king of his people. But when the people rejected God as their king and chose Saul, God still sought to shepherd his people through Saul. But Saul didn't shepherd the sheep. He mistreated them and led them astray. So God raised up David, a man after his own heart, and calls him to be the one through whom now God would shepherd his people through David. God's kingdom would be established and led by a shepherd ruler. Who would be one with the people, but God's agent to rule and guide them. And the whole shepherd king theme is introduced right here. That God would repeat throughout history. And when the kings who followed David proved to be unfaithful shepherds, forsaking God and abusing the sheep, God carries them off into captivity. destroys their reign and raises up a prophet to remind his captive people that God was still their shepherd king and would raise up a ruler through the line of David who will be the shepherd of his people forever. That prophet he raised up in Babylon for that message was Ezekiel. And God said through Ezekiel in chapter 34 verse 15, I myself will tend my sheep. And have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. He went on in verse 22 to say, I I will save my flock. And they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will shepherd my people. I will raise up my servant David to be prince among them. Now, when you're reading that, you think, wait a minute. I myself will shepherd my people through my servant David. When Ezekiel spoke those words, David's already been dead for over 400 years. So God, is there going to be a resurrection of David? No, God wasn't speaking of the David who had died. He was speaking of great David's greater son, Jesus. Which is why when Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30, like David began his kingship at the age of 30, He declared himself to be the shepherd of God's people. The shepherd of God's kingdom. About whom God had spoken. You see that's why in John 10 it was so significant at that moment. When Jesus identified himself like this in John 10 verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. That's you and me. They too will listen to my voice. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. One kingdom and one king. And David, my servant, will reign over that kingdom forever. Forever. That servant of David's line is Jesus. You see, this David went out, and in the power of God, King David delivered Israel and Judah from the oppression of their Philistine enemies. But the ultimate shepherd, King Jesus, would go out to save his people from their greatest enemy, sin, death, and the grave. That's why 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah said in chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be the fuel for the fire. What great warrior, what great king, what great deliverer is going to come and conquer a battle like that and bring that kind of joy? People, nobody could have anticipated what Isaiah said next. For to us, a child is born. A baby's going to do this. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. But this will be no ordinary baby. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Look at this. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. People, this is why when the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to give birth to a son, you're going to name him Jesus. He will be great, Luke 1, verse Verse 32, he'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, God would establish his kingdom to the line of David, who would be the shepherd king leading to the ultimate shepherd king of God himself, who came to us as he promised God in human flesh to save us from our sins and to reign as king of kings and establish his kingdom forever. This kingdom would have a new center, not Hebron. It would be Jerusalem. So David goes up to attack the Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 6. Not only would Jerusalem be more centrally located to the United Kingdom, but this would be a city on a hill, you remember? A fortress city. Everything goes up to Jerusalem. But God had plans for Jerusalem greater than even David could possibly know. You see, this city was a city on a hill. That hill was called Moriah, where Abraham was told to go to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But in that obedience, God would supply a lamb who would be the substitute for Isaac. And through the blood of that lamb, Isaac would be saved on a hill called Moriah. This would be the place where David would buy a plot of land from Aruna the Jebusite, where the temple would one day be sited, the ark put in place, and the glory of God would descend in his presence in that temple. The place where sacrifices would remind the people of their sin and the need for one sacrifice, to take away the sins of the world for all time. This would be the city where Jesus, the ultimate David, the true temple, the atoning sacrifice, would supper and die. The great high priest would present himself as the Lamb of God. This is the city where the king would rise, conquering sin, death, and the grave. This is the city that he will one day return to, to reign over God's eternal kingdom as king of kings and lord of lords. And this is why, on that day, the angels will blow the trumpet, and all of God's people will shout, and the heavenly hosts will declare, Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdom of this world... Has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. People, that day is coming. Jesus is gonna do that. And then the words of the prophet Zechariah will come true. Zechariah 14, verse 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord, and his name, the only name. One king and one kingdom. As it was with King David, so it will be with King Jesus. And so David's reign is established. And chapter 5 ends with David's defeat of their Philistine enemies and preparing the way for the ark of God's covenant to come into Jerusalem for the very first time. People, God was sovereignly working through all those things. And he's sovereignly working today. We don't like a lot of what happens. We don't understand most of it, not in our lives or what's going on in the world. But I can assure you of this, God is sovereign. He is in complete control. He's working in the circumstances in your life, whatever their cause. And he's working in the circumstances in the world, whatever their cause, to bring about what he has promised, to give rise to the reign of his King and the establishment of his kingdom. And that's why we can trust this God, because he makes no mistakes, he brooks no rivals, and he cannot be defeated. Jesus is coming again. The king is on the move. He's working in us and through us to make that king and that kingdom real so the world may see. And one day when this king steps down foot again on the Mount of Olives and comes into a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, when all the kings of the world come to bow down at his feet, when he reigns truly over the whole earth, one kingdom and one king, then you and I will join the angels' chorus. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign. Forever and ever. And all God's people said. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I don't understand a lot that happens. I don't even like some of it. David didn't understand it all, and he didn't like it either. But now we look back and we can see your sovereign hand was at work in every circumstance to give rise to the reign of your king. And to give rise to the reign of your kingdom. So, God, help us to trust you today, to set our eyes on you today, to believe in you today, and to know that you are sovereign and you are king. And we look forward to the day, every day, that through our lives you'll make the reign of King Jesus known. As we look forward to the great and glorious day of his appearing. May it be for your glory and our joy.